I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 22nd, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about how the Rio Olympics played in the United States and critique NBC's coverage, or maybe there won't be anything to critique. We'll see. We'll then talk to Scott Price of Sports Illustrated about how the games played in Brazil, whether a bloated, expensive, sportocratic fortnight can bring meaningful change to the third world. And Luke O'Brien will join us to discuss the rematch between Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz at UFC 202 and what the UFC's $4 billion sale means for the present and future of mixed martial arts. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and a master of the rear naked choke. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, a man who never taps out even when he uh, loses consciousness. <laughs> even even when subject to a rear naked choke. I'm more a uh, master of the full frontal handshake. Warm handshake. 
That's why we're such a great team together. Stefan chokes Mike out, and yeah. Mike just accepts it happily. Uh, how are you guys? I don't. Is, is that what we do on this show? No, we, we just move on. We well, move I, on. I'll give a little update quickly. I was on uh, MSNBC this morning, and uh, I wanted to plug this podcast, the podcast we're on, Hang Up and Listen, and the uh, anchor said, and now the host of Slate's Sports Upcoming Podcast, and then when the phrase Hang Up and Listen was meant to be read from the teleprompter, I think she just bailed. She totally bailed. She didn't know what those words in a row meant, and she just went on, hello, Mike. (laughs) Like, so if you're here for Slate's Upcoming Podcast, this is it. It up came. (laughs) I was not on MSNBC this morning. My daughter started high school, though. Nice. That's freaking me out. That's big. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so if I seem a little melancholy this morning, <laughs> that's why. So a couple things I wanted to mention. We interviewed Clarissa Shields a couple months ago. We did. There's a documentary, T-Rex, that she was the subject of. She just won her second gold medal. It was an awesome, awesome fight, and she gave an awesome interview afterwards. We're going to rerun that interview as a standalone episode. We'll publish it on the Hangup feed on Wednesday. So if you have not heard that, check it out. And also, we did a bunch of Hangup extras during the Olympics, and they're still good. Oh, yeah. If you have Shelf listened. life. Long shelf life. There's going to be a long tale on Dwight Stones being very angry. Mm-hmm. That, uh, and Nina Kimes saying, yeah. <laughs> that, those will stand the test of time. So look for those in the Hangup and Listen feed. Subscribe if you haven't. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the U.S. men's basketball team, and they won their third straight Olympic gold medal. What do we know? What will the future hold, et cetera? You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com slash hangupplus. So we talked about NBC and the coverage a couple weeks ago. You weren't here for that episode, Stefan. So you get the first word here. That's exciting for you. And I had said, hold on, let's let's slow our roll here. Maybe the ratings won't be down. We got to wait for the data. Okay, the data's in. The ratings were down. The ratings were down 17%. (laughs) And one thing that I didn't realize was, and I thought, oh, well, you know, ratings are down for everything because people just don't watch TV as much anymore. The ratings had actually been increasing every four years up until this year. They're up in 2012. They're up in 2008. And I think all of us, I'm going to speak for you, Mike, because I just live deep inside your cerebellum. Mm-hmm. All of us would have said, um, you know, there's no tape delay or not as much tape delay this year. We're going to have live events because it's a similar time zone. Ratings are going to be up. You got Michael Phelps. You got Biles. You got Ledecky. So this was surprising to me. Stefan, what do you make of the fact that America seemed to lose a little bit of interest in these Olympics? The trend, I think, for the Olympics is going to, despite NBC's dogged determination to stick with the primetime packaged, highlight-heavy, features-heavy presentation of the games, it is clear that we are moving away from that and that the best viewing of these Olympics occurred online during live streams and on NBC's sister channels on cable. That's where I watched, what, 90% of the Olympics? I mean, I watched most of the nights because if I missed Usain Bolt or I missed something that I really wanted to see, I did tune in. And because, you know, we're supposed to be 
paying attention to the stuff. <laughs> we watch it. But most of what I watched was on the other channels or online. Um, and th it is clear that NBC is going to have to change something moving forward. And look, they have adapted. They have adapted enormously. No, they didn't eight, 12 years ago, did they? Offer every event live online. Now they do. I mean, it really is a, 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 you can watch whatever the hell you want, whenever the hell you want it. And NBC apparently is getting good ad value for the streaming events. Those ads are selling for a fair amount of money. I think everything you said is true, but I also think we risk exaggerating how many Americans really take advantage of that online experience. Yes. This Bloomberg piece yeah. that really dug deep into the rating stuff said that 98% of people watch the Olympics on traditional television. And so we have like an extremely elitist view of, you know, how best to consume these things. And the ratings decline. Now, it's one question, should we care about whether NBC's ratings decline? Mm -hmm. I say no, but um, I'm sure NBC cares, and they're probably not, like, super heartened by the fact that the online numbers went up a little bit. They went up a quarter. They 78 million unique users on the app and on NBCOlympics.com. Um the real problem for NBC is that younger people that advertisers are willing to pay money for, uh, those, those numbers were down. And that's hugely concerning to them. So through eight nights, I don't know the final stats, there were uh, 28 million on average a night watching. And then online and through the other ways to watch, it was another 2 million. So that's not quite 98, but it is uh, quite above 90% of the viewing online. And when you add it all together, that slightly over 30 million doesn't touch the uh, 33 million in London, the 34 million in Beijing. Right. Now, Compare it to the fact that everything else in the world is declining, it still winds up being a better bang for the buck. And it doesn't, you can't compare it to past years. You just have to compare it to other media. And even though it's not delivering the numbers that advertisers wanted, especially in the demographic you said, I think that it's doing better than everything else in the world. And the only thing, Josh, that you were saying, uh, should we care? Maybe NBC's coverage will get a little better if uh, there's a perception that they're a step behind the times. And that's how I was looking at NBC's coverage, which is, it seems like coverage from a bygone era where we were force-fed storylines and there doesn't exist the possibility of, let alone, I'm not even going to touch Deadspin, but even ESPN being a check to the narrative of what, say, CBS is doing or ABC being a check to the narrative of NBC. When you have only one broadcast entity who really can show any actual moving footage, you have a monopoly and they can force feed you any story they want. And it doesn't matter if Reuters and the AP tells different stories about what the Olympics experience is. We're kind of getting an old school Rune Arledge top down gatekeepers will tell you the story they want to tell you type uh, sporting slash news event. I just think that we're lucky that NBC's coverage on aggregate when you account for the streams is as good as it is. Because as you say, Mike, they totally control our viewing experience and they could put nothing online if they wanted to. And, you know, coming from working at an all-weekly, Stefan, you work for a newspaper, uh, 
just the resistance that you traditionally see about putting anything online in you know traditional media and wanting to protect that it's the same as in the newspaper business you've got this enormous pie of broadcasting ad revenue that's shrinking and you have this smaller pie of online ad revenue that's growing. And so one response, the traditional response, is to protect the enormous pie mm-hmm. so that it shrinks at a at a slower rate. But NBC just put everything online, which is great for viewers like us and surely exacerbates the shrinking of the television audience. And so for all the correct criticism of the shitty NBC primetime broadcast experience. I see that. And maybe this is an elitist opinion because I'm like free to like spend a lot of the day watching stuff online when most people aren't. But I take that as like a tax that I'm willing to pay that the NBC primetime broadcast is bad. Like I am fine with that just based on everything else that I get that they don't have to give me. Because they're for-profit. I mean, they're not like CBC or BBC where they're like a state-run broadcaster. They don't owe any of it. You know, it's not a public trust. They're broadcast to the Olympics. They don't owe us anything. I think the bigger worry for NBC has to be that if you can't generate like the greatest primetime ratings ever with Usain Bolt and Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps and Simone Biles and the Dream Team, then long-term, you got to be a little concerned. Right, because younger people just don't care. Well, the issue is that no matter how dynamic the personalities are and how much they win, they are participating in sports that are like very old and are not the kinds of things that people would watch by choice if it wasn't the Olympics. And we've always said that it's fun to be able to tune into these sports every four years, but maybe that is going to change at some point when there are so many other entertainment options available. I also feel like, Mike, let me know if you agree with this or not, that the issue with these Olympics was, and Justin Peters wrote this in his piece that that published last night, there wasn't that much conflict or drama with all of these stars that Stefan just mentioned. These were all coronations. There wasn't like tune in to see if Katie Ledecky is going to win or if Simone Biles is going to win. A, you already you know knew that Simone Biles was going to win. And B, it wasn't even close. And so there, there wasn't really that imperative to see like, oh, well, how did she eke it out by a couple hundredths of a point? Right. Well, despite NBC's best efforts in gymnastics to turn it into some sort of drama. What was the be- that's, that's right. What's the biggest American surprise of the Olympics? I don't know. Evan Jagger taking second in the steeplechase? Quick. The U.S. The U.S. women's soccer team losing. No, I mean the bag, the biggest surprise that you that would positively affect ratings that you'd stick around oh. for <laughs> a surprise on the upside. Yeah, uh, uh, pole vault. Helen Maroulis, <laughs> the wrestler. Exactly. <laughs> Can we critique uh, some of the coverage? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it was beyond critique. Beyond critique. My bugbear was the Paul Chalimo 5,000-meter men's race fiasco. Um, Let's listen to the clip of what happened on NBC. Paul, I'm getting some information here that you have been disqualified in this final. And we got to go back and look at the replay to see what happened. But apparently there was some pushing and shoving. There were some moments where you were – there were some elbows and things happening. I'm not exactly sure why. But if you look at it here, we'll see what happens. There you are with the arrow over your head. 
and we'll watch this as it rolls. Watch it with me. I like how he needs an arrow over his own head to yeah, identify right. himself. I hope the arrow didn't now, hit you him. You think you impeded someone or no, someone impeded you? I was, trying, I was trying to go on the outside to get a position because they were blocking me in. They were pushing me into the rail. That's why I was trying to save myself from all the pushing. So I was trying to go on the outside and stay on the outside. The Ethiopian guy couldn't allow me go to go to stay there where I was because he was blocking me like the whole time. All right, a couple things here. One is that apparently Paul Chalimo was standing with Lewis Johnson for two or three minutes before the interview began. And according to Adam Kilgore in the Washington Post, the next day, NBC had the information that he had been DQ'd. So Johnson apparently held it and waited for the live camera to start rolling before informing Paul Chalimo that he, in fact, been disqualified. Great TV. Woo. We're going to get a, a, a live reaction from a guy that was just disqualified. Not really very compassionate to the runner and and eating into the time that he would have, as somebody pointed out to me on Twitter, um, to go actually file a formal protest about the disqualification. Two, the information that Lewis Johnson was using was wrong. That wasn't why Paul Chalimo was originally disqualified disqualified from the race for bumping somebody. He was disqualified, it turns out, for stepping on the inside line of the track at a segment of the track where there's usually a little railing, a little curb, but it was cut out there and there were just cones because the high jumpers need room to run on the track to make their lead up, apparently. So they operated on misinformation. This poor guy had just been disqualified. They gave it to him on live TV just to get a reaction. I thought that was terrible television. Well, they needed and he a few was, minutes. he was reinstated. He wasn't actually and disqualified. And he was reinstated, and NBC never <laughs> came back to him. We waited at least 10 minutes to find out that he was reinstated, or 20 minutes, and then they never, like, tracked him down again to get, um, to, 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 to re-interview him. Well, maybe some of the delay was getting that arrow in place. That must have taken yeah. quite a while in the, con- in the control room. Yeah, that definitely seemed to be uh, uh, putting the story, quote unquote story, fake story. Actually, two two versions of fake, Mis- misreported and ultimately not the uh, story, putting that ahead of the feelings of the subject or uh, a- any sort of ethical consideration for the Absolutely. subject. Absolutely. And Chilimo was not happy. Here's what he told uh, Adam Kilgore. I don't know why they did that. I had to wait two or three minutes before they had me on li- live on the TV. I thought they were trying to interview me because I'm a silver medalist. They should have told me what was happening. Yeah, they should have. Shouldn't that, like in, in, in horse racing, boom, right on the screen, stewards inquiries. Shouldn't someone official have come and told them? I don't know. The thing about that interview, though, was everything that you said is correct, but it strikes me as kind of the opposite of what our typical critique of NBC is, that they don't actually go hard after news and that they ask after events, the athletes, these inane questions that don't mm-hmm. actually get at anything interesting. So I just give them points for creativity, for being bad in a different way this time. <laughs> but to Mike's point, I was I was having a Twitter conversation with Ann Gaffigan, a former uh, long-distance runner. Um, and she explained that you don't have a lot of time. It's kind of chaotic on the feet on the uh, track. It doesn't look like it's chaotic, but it's hard for officials to track down the runners. The runners don't all stay in one place. But still, it seems to me like that should be the you know. Look, we're journalists. We want to see the the we want athletes to respond live to shit that's happening. But there's also something that says that this is just badly organized. Like this is badly run. Like shouldn't officials or coaches be informing the athletes so that they can explain what happened and file their complaint? NBC runs this town, man. Uh, Mike, what did you think of how NBC handled the Ryan Lochte stuff? I think that uh, 
And well, I, I don't think it was good. I think the original Billy Bush interview, which you played some of on uh, the Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra uh, with, you know, huge waves crash in the background was so bad that noted journalism professor Al Roker had to take Billy Bush to task <laughs> for letting him off the hook. And so th- there was th- all this woodshedding going on. Roker taking Bush to the woodshed, Matt Lauer doing his uh, Oprah with James Fry impression. You lied to us, Ryan. You lied. And it would seem that when the dust clears on this, there's going to be plenty of room for interpretation. But it does seem, I mean, today, uh, Monday as we speak, USA Today did a pretty thorough report which showed among other things that there was no soap dispenser smashed in a bathroom and no mirror smashed in the bathroom and several independent sources uh gunner bentz uh who's not an independent source but a, Port- a portuguese speaking brazilian which is say a brazilian who came across the scene and translated for them backed up a lot of ryan lochte's parts of the story so it would seem that the story went from ryan lochte certainly being an ugly american and reporting things that were inaccurate then there was this huge backlash where Ryan Lochte was a liar. And that's where I think NBC ultimately rested. They certainly treated Ryan Lochte as a guy who had ruined their TV show, as opposed to, you know, a person who has some version of uh, nonfiction he's involved in and we as a news organization are trying to get to the bottom of that nonfiction. They led mostly with, I was hurt, I was lied to, you shamed us. Basically, you ruined our TV show as opposed to you are a uh, person in the news. As opposed to a dumb drunk. He was dumb and he was drunk, but that is part of his defense in in all fairness. Right, right. I was getting to that's what I meant. A dumb drunk athlete told some exaggerations, lied. Did he ruin their TV show or did he provide them with uh, a lot of awesome co- primetime content? Oh, I God. Mean, they showed the- 14 minutes of that in primetime and Costas went out of his way to tell the audience that we showed you 14 minutes. And I think that was a classic Costas troll, by the way, <laughs> saying the 14 minutes was his way of saying that was a dumbass 14 <laughs> minutes and I'm apologizing to you. But also like Al Roker being like the Pointer Institute uh with with Billy Bush, there was also a third member of that panel, and that was Natalie Morales, who just kept saying in the background, like she was like a guest, uh, like on a rap track or something. Her like line that she kept repeating was, "Come on today, Ryan. Come on today and tell us your story, Ryan. She was the Come on man. today, Ryan." <laughs> so no, I don't think I don't think they were mad at him for ruining. NBC's coverage. Well, that was that was the pose. That was at least the part they had to play. Like I, I have talked about this a couple times in media outside of our slate bubble, and people are not not amused, not bemused, not saddened. People are out for freaking blood with Ryan Lochte. There are so many people with pitchforks who want the guy more than banned. Like they make it's Twitter, and people are idiots, but. You know, I can't tell you how many people are telling me if he did this in the United States and Florida, he'd be shot dead. Like, what? All right. People hate Ryan Lochte and they want him severely punished. That a lot was the of, worst lot of anger the, in this country. That was the worst part of the Lauer interview where he he did the like classic straw man. Um, people are saying that you could be banned for from 
the world, basically, and it could be banned from swimming for life. What would you say to those people? Like, shut up. Well, is that as bad as the Costas Lauer conversation that maybe something untoward, that they were they were behaving in an irresponsible way prior to going to the gas station? Well, I maybe said they this. were consorting with women. I, I put don't this know. to Ryan, and Ryan people said, are saying, absolutely not. <laughs> All right, let's let's in this. Let's put a button on this conversation. Except I'm tired of Tom Hammond and Al Troutwick. Time for new track and field and gymnastics. There we go. We have, we have buttoned. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, we just talked about how the Olympics played in the U.S. Joining us now from Rio to talk about how it went in Brazil is S.L. Price, Scott Price from Sports Illustrated. Hey, Scott. How are you guys? We're good. It's good to hear from you. And we're wondering, you wrote a piece for SI where you, uh, your lead was about maybe seeing a dead body. Yep. Um, is that kind of, <laughs> does that exemplify what your Olympic experience was all about? Well, the it, 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 for me, it exemplified what we sort of were, the, the extreme version of what we were expecting, which is, you know, this is, this is a mess. Rio is crime riddled. And what I was, you know, the interesting thing about that was I don't know if it was a dead body. It could have been a journalist who was drunk. It could have been a citizen who had been stabbed. It could have been someone hit by a hit and run. There was no report, uh, you know, in the Brazilian police or newspapers or anything about this. So I thought, you know, as a journalist, we we parachute into these situations and we make snap judgments. And I thought it valuable for me to stop myself and and check myself and say, well, you know, not everything is what it seems. And um, I sort of feel the same way about these games. It's very easy to take a shot at Rio and very easy to take a shot at the organizers. And there were obviously tons of things that were difficult down here. Crime was a problem. There was a British uh, athlete who was, was indeed robbed at gunpoint. An Australian athlete was robbed at gunpoint. They weren't Ryan Lochte. And, and, and the uh, Brazilian Organizing committee understands that you know they 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 weren't trying to gloss over crime when the Lockie thing happened. So to me, I just thought it was important to to try and stop and and take a look at how we all sort of snap judge on a place and things are maybe perhaps not at all what it seems. Go ahead, Mike. I think that I've read a lot of stories, and it all depends what your assumption is or what your assertion of your assumption is. So some of the stories were of the ilk of there's been so much hype about how bad Rio is, but no one got sick in the water. Zika seems not to have played a role and Lochte lied. Another set of stories were 
just because Lochte lied doesn't mean that. And we could list all these athletes who were ro- robbed at knife point and after opening ceremonies, the Portuguese minister who was attacked and they shot his assailant right. dead and and uh, bullets in the equestrian center and either bullets or rocks taking out the windows of a bus coming back from basketball. So it really depends what your starting assumption was. Um, what was yours? And do you think, how did Rio do uh, compared to that? Well, I, uh, let, me put, let me put it this way. I think there was all these starting assumptions, and mine were certainly with everybody else's. The run-up was the worst. This is my 10th Olympics, and the run-up was the worst I've ever seen in terms of, uh, you know, uh, again, I hate to use it. We all say we hate to use it. I'm going to use it. Perfect storm, you know, economic, social, political meltdown. And nobody expected that when they were awarded the Games in 2009. And so as a result... There was these horrible expectations for it. On the other hand, I personally didn't like Beijing. I felt it was like an Olympics in a snow globe. I felt it was uh, c- controlled to the nth degree, and that's how the Olympics and the IOC like things, and that's how the IOC committee members love things. Everything's controlled. Everybody's comfortable. I like that as a journalist and even as the Olympics uh, are exposed to the world, that the edges are rough and that, um, that what's happening in the real world is seeping under the, under the edge of the bubble and coming in and you feel it in the games. Where you, you knew you were in Rio and you know you're dealing with a developing country. And the problems here are not the problems of, of Paris or New York, uh, and they're not containable. And so for me, it's as it should have been. And, and there were... There were glorious moments, and there were rough moments. And, and, and I have to say, the, the real organizers and the Brazilian police were very mature about it. They didn't say, see, Ryan Lochte was wrong, and, and, and everything's just fine here. Instead, there, there was this incredible sort of shrug and resignation and understanding on their part of what the atmosphere is like, what the problems are we're dealing with, and if you, don't, if you can't handle it, we, there's not much we can do about it because the problems are almost so overwhelming that, that we can't worry about public perception. And that, that, what I'm saying is that's the side of the Brazilians toward these games. And as someone who wants to see the Olympics reflect as opposed to deflect what's going on in the world around it, appreciate that. But the, the, the bubbly part of that is that while you'd like the Olympics to reflect the world and the realities of the world... <laughs> Should the Olympics be in the business of exacerbating the realities of the world, you know, forcing countries and, you know, regardless of whether Brazil was in better economic condition seven years ago when it agreed to take on this multi-billion dollar um, effort to host the Olympic Games, should that be part of the Olympic message? Because it is undeniable that while you can argue now that infrastructure spending might be worth it in Athens – Yep. or in Beijing, or in Rio, you can still spend on infrastructure without having to host a two-week festival that also entails billions of additional dollars in spending that will vanish, that have no benefit to society. And you could argue in this in, in this regard that the World Cup was far worse for Brazil than the Olympics because of all these white elephant stadiums. So the tension between, yeah, we want the Olympics to be part of the real world and we don't want to make the world worse, I think is a strong one. I, I do too. And I, but I will tell you that, you know, going back to Athens, 
I, I spent a lot of time there, and the infrastructure projects that were done in Athens, the new airport, the, the metro, everything else, would not have happened Correct. without the Olympics going in there. So it, it, the, that, the weird thing about the Olympics is, and I'm not suggesting that, that this should be done every single time, nor do I think it should be used as blackmail to get projects done overall, or, but I think that there are certain times when the Olympics has this power that almost no other entity in the world has that totalitarian and free governments are changing what they do and somehow can improve their societies as a result of it. I personally think that they don't use that power enough. I wish they had called out the Beijing uh, situation and the, the human rights situation in China, um, and they, would, they, they conveniently say, well, we don't have that kind of power. We, we were here just to have a nice festival. And then, of course, they'll, they'll switch and have a different attitude when they want something and want spending. And so it's very situational and, and unfortunate. But overall, I think, it's, um, I think, I think this is going to end up being a positive thing for Brazil to have, to have hosted the games. I think in the end they're going to they're gonna be happy they did it. So one graph from your story that I thought was really interesting, Scott, was you wrote, take away the refugee team that won over the world during the opening ceremony, and these have been an Olympic shorn of idealism and steeped in the type of stark reality that reality TV avoids. I was curious, um, on NBC here, they just played over and over again the moment with the runners from the 5,000 meters um, Nikki Hamblin and Abby D'Agostino helping each other off the ground and what a testament that was to the Olympic spirit. And they were just pushing that on us so much. And I actually thought, like, maybe it's because there was an absence of moments like this. It felt like it was just being elevated and shoved in our faces to a degree. Did you, A, was was that moment like such a big deal in Rio, and did you feel like there were others, and there was this kind of grasping for, you know, feel-good sorts of, of moments? Well, I, I mean, I think the refugee team is the perfect example of that. I mean, you know, this, this is uh, an incredibly deep and disturbing time for the IOC, from, from, the, Ru- from the Russian doping scandal to Pat Hickey's naked arrest. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing and it's humiliating. And the drop in the bucket of, of the refugee Olympic team, uh, as pure and as incredible a moment it is, and as, as, as desperate and happy as the refugees that I spoke to in Kenya were about being a part of this team, um, the fact is, is that there, there were very few of those moments. I didn't feel them pushed on me down here. I didn't, I didn't see any of the NBC coverage, frankly. So it, in, in many ways, that's the other problem with a conversation like this. I remember I came home from Atlanta. It was a horrible um, it, Olympics in many ways on the ground. It was organizationally nightmarish, and it was a commercial you know, overkill. And I would come home from there, and people would say, wow, how'd you like being at the Olympics? And I said, oh, I'd start complaining about it like all journalists do, because that's, that's what we do. And people said, God, on TV, it just looked great. I don't know what you're talking about. And over and over, I've had that experience where wh- how it feels on the ground here is not at all uh, how it's beamed through the television set. And uh, there are two different kinds of reality. And, and down here, being down here, I just found that there were, there were great moments. Um, we, of course, as news 
people concentrate on the ones that are negative. But um, overall, I thought that um, the competitions were astounding. And, and, you know, going back to, you know, Olympic moments, I, you know, we can talk about the friendship and the harmony all we want, but, you know, there are times when you're here and an Olympic moment happens and it's, it's, it's not really what you expect. And, you know, for me, one was Katie Ledecky breaking down and crying. It was incredibly pure. Um, this is not a, an athlete or a person who's given to that kind of thing. And you could just see the sheer relief and, frankly, sadness at the end of a chapter of her life. And it, it came upon her unawares. You just happened to be there when, when, when she just broke down. She apologized, and she couldn't stop. And um, it was as honest a moment as, as you're going to see in sports. And it's sort of what we all come to the Olympics for, is that you're waiting for that pure moment of, 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 of I don't know, purity or honesty. And, and, of course, we all laugh at it. We all want to be cynical about it, and we're all right to do so. But there's a reason we keep coming back to this to this Olympics and this idea of it is that even though we know it's full of corruption and self-importance and puffery, every once in a while there's, there's something that tells you, you know, this is why we're here. And that was it for me. So Rio got the games in 2009. And actually, if you look at the uh, economic charts, it had begun its decline then because of the world financial crisis. But before then, it was one of these brick nations on the, yeah. a- on the ascent. Knowing what we know now about, A, what you're saying, that, like, let's not prettify the Olympics, um, but let's also take into account how much crime there really was in Rio and the economic complications of Rio. And also, we haven't talked about this yet, what a disaster the Paralympics is looking to be. 12% of tickets sold, a huge come down and an insult to those athletes. Should Rio have gotten the games? And a second question is, do you think knowing what we know now, the people who actually vote on it, whether they should have voted on it, would have voted for Rio to get the games? Well, knowing what we know now, I, I don't think I don't think there's any question that they would not have voted for Rio. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way that uh, if if they had any sense of the difficulties and the economic situation now that they would have put Rio um, given Rio the games. And I mean, do I on, on a, from an IOC perspective, I absolutely think that they uh, regret putting Rio here, and I would I would say that this may well knock South Africa. Uh, out of out of the running for and any other developing nation out of the running for a generation. I think they're going to be scared and and go to places that are completely uh, buttoned down and um, fail safe as much as an Olympic Games can be. So, um, I, yeah, I just think that the, the, that's where we are. I, I, that's where we are right now. I don't think the IOC is a brave organization. I think they're they're going to be scared off from this kind of Olympics again. And let me just say on the Paralympics, like, how can we expect uh, an economy such as Rio to support these Paralympic Games, which normally are just like such a pent up demand to get to see the facilities? That's what happened in London. People just wanted to see the velodrome or whatever. And, the, and they, they also wanted to support the Paralympians. But it's just a totally different situation in Rio. And there's a, a different I mean, London has a tradition of support, you know, going back with war veterans and everything else um, uh, for uh, Paralympians and um, this, there's not a great tradition of it down here. There's and and they're they're as a result, it's I mean the the popular look the they had problems filling seats at the Olympics. Right. They they there were the swaths of empty seats at the stadium were astounding, frankly, for everything that Brazil you know anything that wasn't Brazilian football 
Um, so as a result, uh, you know, having seen that, the the Paralympian the Paralympic Games are are going to be, I frankly think, a disaster, and um, that's sort of tragic. And again, it, it speaks to the IOC's pretensions and to its need, its pathological need for scale, that everything has to be oversized and everything has to be part of this Olympian ideal and tradition. And a lot of that, as we know, is, is, is bullshit. Right. And the, the, you know, the optimal thing that could happen for the future of the Olympic Games is some sort of rational scaling back in the size and scope and ambition and demands that the IOC places on any host city, well, whether, this, whether it's Los Angeles or Rio. Well, this isn't supposedly, you know, right. their plan going forward, you know, with 2020, right. their 2020 vision, vision. But, of course, they're going – they went back to Beijing, uh, you know, so <laughs> for the Winter Games, which is of all absurd on, on many counts. And um, – it's clear that you know they say they're going to want to scale back. They say that they're going to want to uh, have a more modest games and one that doesn't demand as much from the host country and city. But um, there's no question that this has been taxing on Rio. No. Um, I think Rio will be happy, not happy, will be satisfied that it did have the games in the end. But overall, um, there is a lot of regret here as well. All right, let's wrap up with the sports of it. You um, wrote about Katie Ledecky. I've never been to a swimming race, actually, and they play pretty well on TV, I think, even when Americans are not (laughs) winning every single time. But what is it like in the venue? How loud is it? What um, did it feel like to be witness to um, one of those performances? I mean, it, it, it's it's pretty astounding. I mean, the, it, there's no question when when when. I mean, swimming is a strange sport. I mean, obviously, as a spectator, you're watching and you can't see their faces and and what's happening and the. It's sort of like watching the offensive or defensive lines. You're not sure exactly what's going on in a football game. Um, the schemes, unless you're really steeped in it, and you really don't know what's what's happening with the strokes and the rhythm and so on and so forth but and neither does many neither do many people in the crowd but there's no question that when it's a when a, when someone is on a world record pace like Ledecky was in two races um he, that the electricity courses through the building and it, and it's incredibly exhilarating to sit and watch it and to and and to watch her basically push the limits of 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 that sport i will say i did see uh some of the camera work uh and it to me, is in many ways, I think it's a sport that plays better on TV than in person because the camera work of of, uh, of the camera that followed them down the lane and then would would swoop around and then face them as they came in was was amazing. So to me, the the Olympic Games in many ways, the technology shown by the camera work is is one of the great measures of of human progress. All right, Scott Price uh, wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated among his many pieces from Rio. Let Rio be Rio. Don't be so quick to judge the first Olympics in the developing world. Check it out on SI.com. Scott Price, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Saturday night in Las Vegas, Conor McGregor beat Nate Diaz by majority decision in a five-round welterweight fight that everyone instantly labeled the mixed martial arts fight of the year. The Irish McGregor, the biggest name and loudest mouth in the UFC, had lost to Diaz by submission in March. This time, he knocked Diaz down repeatedly, only to have the Californian come back in the third round and take control, only to have McGregor get a second wind and barely eke out a victory on the judges' scorecards. After a series of disappointing cards and positive drug tests for famous dudes Brock Lesnar and John Jones, the UFC, which just sold for $4 billion to the talent agency William Morris Endeavor, needed a fight that reminded mixed martial arts fans that it's fun to watch guys beat each other up. So thank goodness both men ended up covered in blood. Joining us now is our senior blood sport correspondent, Luke O'Brien. He profiled McGregor for ESPN the magazine and has spent enough money on UFC pay-per-views to pay for the left front hubcap on one of Dana White's Bentleys. Hey, Luke. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you for the intro. Sure thing. So with a lot of these UFC cards, especially recently, they've ended in disappointment, or they've kind of even begun in disappointment with people dropping off the bill. UFC 200 was supposed to be this kind of great celebration of how far the sport had come. Then Ronda Rousey lost. Conor McGregor dropped off the bill. Brock Lesnar was the headliner, and then he tested positive for PEDs. And so this card really was the first one in a long time where I would imagine the people that bought it came away satisfied and thinking this is the sport that we love. Yeah, well, I'd have to agree with that. Um, It's been a rough stretch for the UFC uh, lately. They seem to go through these these dips. Um, A lot of their champions... Uh, have lost recently, and some of them after just defending their titles for in their first title defense. Um, so this really was uh, a, a premier event, and uh, the main the main event on the card delivered. Certainly, it was not a showcase of the range of mixed martial arts techniques, but it was a fight that just really brought out the 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 heart uh, of both competitors. And you don't see that as often in MMA as you'd like, where it's just kind of back and forth and each guy you think is going to be broken and then, and then he somehow fights through it and gets a second wind. Uh, that's the kind of dramatic tension in, in, in fighting in combat sports that makes everyone want to watch these things. $4 billion is like a lot of money for, uh, for UFC, or maybe not a lot of money for UFC. How does this help, or maybe it doesn't, this organization avoid some of that, that uh, yo-yoing in terms of its popularity, in terms of the quality of the events, in terms of the things that have made this, yes, a, an enormously popular sport from time to time, but also something subject of derision or ridicule or speculation about you know, whether it can compete with other mainstream sports? Well, I mean, if you just look at the, the sticker price, it's enormous, some record-setting sticker price. But 
not sure in the short term it does help with uh, the yo-yoing. I think that that is just part of the, the nature of the sport. And you've got many ways to lose a fight. So uh, that's why you see so much turnover with the champions. And in terms of, uh, you know, the sale making the UFC or making MMA, I should say, uh, more legitimate, um, we'll see. I, I don't know what uh, William Morris has planned uh, for the UFC, but you have to imagine that they, that when Dana White says this is the sport going to the next level, it actually is going to the next level. I mean, how much of a step up that is remains to be seen. They've got this Fox contract that I think is up in 2018, which I imagine would be renewed. They're expanding internationally. They've been doing that for some time into, uh, I mean, I think they're trying to break into the, the Chinese market, certainly in India and elsewhere, Latin America, elsewhere around the world. So you're starting to see fighters coming from different areas. It's become far more global just in the last five, six years. Uh, all these are good signs for the sport to continue to, to grow and to you know reach new fans. One downside of this, though, the $4 billion dollar number is that the fighters, and for years this has been an open secret in MMA, that the fighters are getting screwed uh, in terms of the revenue share. you got a couple guys at the very top of the sport that are doing well. Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz has now moved into that level, Conor McGregor. But most of the guys are not doing so great. Uh, I think the, the minimum purse is still $10,000 for the it's, and, and it's been that way for a while, and that's, that doesn't even cover your, your gym fees usually. So fighters take a look at the $4 billion price, and now it's out in the open. Okay, <laughs> this, this company is worth quite a bit. It's been making quite a bit of money, and the fighters uh, they, they are allowed to grumble openly a little bit more now. And there's been some push to unionize. That's always, there's always chatter about that, and there has been for a decade, but... It does seem more real now. So that is another kind of infrastructural, I guess, hurdle that the, that the sport is going to have to get, get over to get to the next level. What was your assessment of the Conor McGregor retirement, quasi-retirement? Were the fans being played? Was he fooling himself? Uh, did it work to hype the subsequent fights more? Can I jump in with a part two on that? Because McGregor, after he retired and then unretired, his unretirement statement was this complaint about how he's asked to do so much promotion for UFC and isn't compensated for that. He said, I'm a fighter and I'm, and I'm not a marketer and I'm not getting paid to be a marketer. Um, my favorite line from his statement was, sitting in a car on the way to some dump in Connecticut or somewhere to speak to Tim and Susie on the Nobody Gives a Fuck morning show did not get me this life. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I think Conor McGregor. Uh, well, I don't know. I think he 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 probably meant it when he said he was retiring. Uh, he probably meant it just for an afternoon, <laughs> and realized what he'd be passing up. But he his he was genuinely upset with the UFC for uh, asking so much of him, and and more was asked of him than any other fighter. I mean, he went on this this world tour uh, to promote the the Aldo fight. And it was, it was seemingly endless. He was in Rio, then he was in the U.S., then he was in Europe, in the middle of his training camp. And he gamely put up with that. 
you know, he had more media obligations than anyone else. And I think that that did affect his first fight with, with Diaz. Uh, he was clearly not, not ready for it. I mean, he was, it's a question of whether he should be fighting at 170 pounds at all. He couldn't carry the weight, but he was, he gassed in, in the second round. And he attributed a lot of that to the media obligations. So, and a lot of the fighters have to have to put up with this. And if you don't, then the UFC will will smack you down. And that's been that's been the model in the past. You do what the UFC says, even if it undermines your training camp, or else. All right. Well, let's listen to a clip from McGregor's post-fight press conference. I don't care what anyone says. I help bring this game to another level. You can you can deny they can deny that all they want, but I did. Like, look at Nate's pores tonight. Look at Nate's pores after the force fight. Look at everyone's, everyone's game has gone up, money-wise. Um, and I helped do that. So after that fight when I lost, and I'm looking at all these people, and they're all celebrating my demise and saying I'm done and this. and um, it, it certainly lit a fire under my belly. Every single person doubted me. Every single fighter doubted me. Doubt me now. So, Luke, there has always been this criticism of McGregor that he's better on the mic than in the octagon. But um, he seems like he has um, kind of blunted that criticism. And with this fight, there was some disagreement about who had won. But as you said near the top, I think nobody was really disputing his skills as a fighter anymore. And... So for the UFC to have this guy who is a master at getting attention, who is increasingly, I think, respected by the cognizant of the sport and is somebody who can sell pay-per-views. And now you have him talking about maybe this union is a good idea instead of what he was saying um, a few months ago, which was, I'm out for myself and screw the UFC, I, like, created this organization, I'm going to get mine. That seems to me like it could bring about structural changes here because he is the UFC, he's the face of the UFC now. That's right. That's right. And, and he is he's the big name. He's the one who brings the money in more so than any other fighter. So he does have some influence there. And I, I was almost surprised to hear him talking that way about uh, the possibility of a union and, and getting involved in that because it's a total about face from just a year ago where, as you say, it was all, you know, the bling bling and it's all, I'm, I'm going to get mine. And I think uh, two things happened, really. Um, one is that he lost and, you know, some of that luster wore off and he, you know, he might have been drinking his own Kool-Aid a little bit. Uh, and, and and so he he's, he was taken down a notch and 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 that was good for him. That made him train harder. You saw how he fought in in the second fight against Diaz. It was a much smarter fight. He paced himself better, even though he still was was out of shape. But you know, and gassed a little bit in the third round. The other real factor here is that McGregor watched one of his teammates kill a guy in the ring back in April in a fight in Dublin. He was he was cornering one of his teammates, uh, fighting a Portuguese fighter, and you know the guy the Portuguese fighter lost by TKO in the third round, 
went to the hospital and and died from some hematoma or, or something in the brain and that really rocked McGregor and some of the things he said after that uh, I think indicated that he he was kind of thinking about his position in the sport a little bit differently but also everyone's future in the sport and well if any athletes could use a union it's these guys well, yes i mean 100 percent. i mean if the revenue share alone is enough to justify a union it's 85 percent 15 percent by all estimates ufc is a private company so it doesn't release those numbers it's usually 50 50 like an nfl baseball exa- nba exactly exactly but these guys are taking you know they're taking brain damage to to make well they made a couple billionaires several more billion dollars there are a bunch of issues there that would justify a union being formed here. A lot, of, a lot of what you're saying says to me that the $4 billion price tag for this business, given the inevitable accumulation of serious health problems and brain issues in the sport, is that this is an, an international plan. I know you alluded to that before, but the growth potential in the United States could be stymied by athlete reluctance, state intervention, medical reports about the, you know, the, the, the future health of these competitors, um, a death in the ring. I mean, in the United States, all those things are likely to have much bigger impacts on the business than I think overseas and in, in, in where, where there are huge markets. Yeah, I agree with you. And the UFC uh, got MMA legalized in New York State this year, and that was the last holdout. So you, you've reached a, a situation where every state has legalized mixed martial arts, I believe, every state, uh, and you could be hitting some sort of market saturation point here. Um, so going global does make sense, and I think you're right. There's going to be less oversight, less regulation, and uh, you know, you've got in endless stream of fighters coming from overseas who are willing to fight for far less money, probably less than $10,000. So, yeah, that does make sense. Well, when when Trump uh, becomes president, he'll build the walls of the octagon higher so they won't be able to get in. So let's just talk about the women's division. Is there a women's division beyond Ronda Rousey? There is, yeah. There's there's a lighter weight division, which is actually a, a pretty exciting division. And the the champion there is I'm gonna boy I'm gonna butcher her name here, but it's Joanna. I can't say her last name. Jerzejic. She's from Poland. She's a really great fighter. Um, the bantamweight division is is Rousey's division, and that's one where where there's been this turnover. Home beat Rousey, and she lost her title in her first defense to Tate, and Tate lost her title in her first defense to to uh, Amanda Nunes. But the other division, there's a real champ in there who is uh, quite a good fighter. So, you know, I mean. The women's divisions have never been as popular, but they continue to grow, and, and better and better fighters are coming in. So there's there's hope there. Uh, some of the other men's divisions are probably not as stacked now as as the women's divisions in terms of, of talent. So, and coming out of the the Olympics, you always hear like Kayla Harrison, the judo gold medalist, is considering going into MMA, and so long as there are these like kind of combat sports where the deals are even uh, worse <laughs> for these athletes, where you can make even less money, then that'll be a talent pool for, uh, for the UFC. 
Yes, absolutely. But that's always been the case. I mean, you've had Olympic wrestlers going to the UFC for, you know, since the UFC began. And I think some of them still, you know, I was interviewing a bunch of these guys for the last Olympics, and they all wanted to talk about MMA and the UFC as a, as a potential career path. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it has always existed uh, as a way for wrestlers to to make money, to continue to fight and make money um, if they develop their skills further and learn some stand-up. A lot of them are unable to do that. But I don't know. I think that that, that makes the sport more compelling. I, I, I kind of miss the the old days when you'd have a wrestler versus a boxer or, you know, a sumo wrestler versus... A bear. <laughs> a bear. You know, I remember some guy who was a master of the Hawaiian art of bone-breaking, you don't really, you don't really see those those uh, styles anymore. It's an art. That guy's name. That guy's name was John Matua, Luke. I used to watch those old UFCs. He got uh, he got uh, knocked out by Tank Abbott in like five seconds. He did. He did not break any bones. Yeah. <laughs> Tank no. Abbott, not a patron of the arts, apparently. Tank, Tank Abbott was just a pit fighter. That was that was his style. All right, before we get too deep into, uh, you know, the days of Jim Brown calling you UFC, uh, Luke O'Brien, he wrote a profile of Conor McGregor for ESPN the magazine. Thank you, sir. Sure, of course. Thanks for having me. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Now it is time for After Balls. And the highlight of the Olympics came in the last day where there was a decision that went against a Mongolian wrestler, which led his coaches to remove their clothes in protest. Inevitably the led. <laughs> the announcers are such narcs on the feed. They're like, we cannot have this in our sport. Don't do it. Don't do it, Mongolian coach. Oh, this is such a sad day for wrestling. Meanwhile, the crowd is like yeah. so happy and excited and chanting Mongolia. They went to the Joe Buck, uh, Randy Moss mooning school of journalism. <laughs> anyway, Stefan has been furiously Googling Mongolian wrestling. Yeah. What do you have for us? Uh, the Nadam is the local festivals. These are local festivals where wrestling played a, a huge role historically. What I really like is the, uh, you get titles in Mongolian wrestling. Undefeatable giant mm. is one title. Wide giant <laughs> is another. This is current. It's like, why but can't the, I be the undefeatable giant? No, we're going with no. with with you. But I'm also <laughs> undefeatable. Yeah, you're wide. Uh, I like wide giant. You like Should wide we, giant? Yeah. All right. Mike, what is your wide giant? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wide giant. So I wanted to share just uh, some effluvia some uh, detritus, some leftover Olympic stuff I have. I don't know if you heard this during, a couple times they said this during the uh, U.S. women's volleyball games, Karch Karai, how he got sucked into coaching volleyball, and it was that his kids were volleyball players, and they begged him to coach, and he said no, and he begged them to coach. And then finally, his uh, two sons, while in junior high, their team lost every match, 
lost every set of every match, going a combined 0-93, and then Karch Karai steps in. So this was presented as an ennobling story on what motivated Karch Karai, but what an asshole as a dad. <laughs> dad, dad, we've lost 50 in a row. Can't you give us some tips? Nope. Dad, you're the greatest volleyball player ever. We're 70 in a row. We've lost. Not stepping in. Then it gets to 0 and 93. He's like, fine. When you set the ball, don't do it with your head. Or whatever it was that Karch Karai said to get uh, those women's rallying. Those women and eventually maybe his sons. Who knows? They didn't even say if he helped his sons in volleyball. Another funny uh, fact that I found from the Olympics. Do you know that after Usain Bolt set uh, his record in the 200, he picked up a javelin and threw it? This doesn't seem safe. And the distance that he threw the javelin, this is like the whole stadium was empty, ran out onto the track, threw a javelin. They're just leaving javelins around. The distance he threw it would have qualified him for fifth on the Jamaican national team in javelin. (laughs) (laughs) Can I interrupt you there? The javelin. Do you see the little javelin cart? My wife posted a little video of the javelin cart from Rio. After the javelin is thrown, however far people throw the javelin, the officials put it in this little, this little. Yeah, the, the, it's like you're right. The it's like all the throwing events have that. Yeah, a yeah. little. Uh, yeah. And then it goes back on its own. It's a droid, a really. Controlled. It's R two Jav two. And the last thing that I think I'll say is I'm just going to repeat. I didn't tape this off the TV, but I heard it and it was in my head and I put it on a a voice recording. Now I'm going to play it to myself and then tell you what this rowing commentator said about, I think it was the women's eight that I was watching. So uh, just bear with me. I'm going to play it into my ear and repeat it to you. This is me listening to myself quoting exactly a a, uh, NBC rowing commentator. Here we go. Mike is listening. All right, hold on. If you want to know what makes the USA so successful, they're finding their boat identity. Wait, hold on, hold on. Ah, okay. If you want to know what makes the USA so successful, it's that they're finding their boat identity and racing to their potential, but more importantly, its potential. Ponder that. (laughs) Do we have boat potential? We have reached full boat potential. (laughs) Stefan, what is your full boat potential slash wide giant? Well, in the middle of the night last week, our friend Joe Poznanski of NBCSports.com had an idea. He would try to catch 10 different Olympic events in one day. The thought, so clear at that late hour, he wrote, was that seeing so many different sports in such a short period of time would reveal the heart of these interesting, challenging, troubling, and inspiring Olympics. Or it would reveal that it's possible for someone with an all-access credential to see 10 different sports in a day. Badminton is a picnic sport, Joe wrote, but the Olympic players are really good. Rhythmic gymnastics is mind-boggling. Seeing the Tongan guy from the opening ceremony do Taekwondo was cool. Wrestler Jaden Cox was inspiring. Diving is insane. Water polo is fascinating. Joe didn't have the right wristband to get into a women's basketball game. And it took too long to get to golf, but boxing showed that sports are heartbreaking. A weird thing happened on a media bus. And finally, at modern pentathlon, a horse threw a rider, which unlocked a deeper meaning in the Olympics. Or maybe it didn't. The headline on Joe's story asked, can it be done? 
It can. Joe proved it. Great idea. Oh, but wait, here's a story from the New York Times. 20 sports, 13 hours. Schedule? Who needs a schedule or a map? Victor Mather, our resident Olympics historian and master of many tasks, proposed such a competition to Sarah Lyle, a staff reporter who, shall we say, is allergic to checklists. Shall we say... Yes, we shall say. So it was many tasks, Master Victor, against checklist allergic Sarah. Let the games begin. Victor, before the Olympics, asked a professor of operations research to apply the old traveling salesman problem to finding the best way around Rio so that he can get to the most events possible. Sarah winged it. They both watched some events. They missed some others. They complained about the transportation and the weather. Like Joe, Sarah found badminton surprisingly entertaining. Victor decided that open water swimming leaves a lot to be desired. Final total, 13 events for Victor. Sarah, five. The Times filled two full pages in Sunday's paper with their stories. So gold to Victor Mather, silver to Joe Poznanski, bronze to Sarah Lyle in the debut of, look at me, I'm a reporter with a credential that lets me attend any event I want at the Olympics. Congratulations to all of our competitors. I'm just getting word, Josh, that this is not a new Olympic event. Sochi 2014, armed with a photographer's credential and an iron will, Joel Reichenberger of the Steamboat Pilot and today of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, was determined to capture images from as many events at the Olympic Winter Games in one day as humanly possible. All right, lugging equipment around was a pain in the ass, so was getting a good spot to shoot. Ice is a challenging backdrop. Joel made it to just six events, but in his defense, he was trying to commit journalism at each one. Let's go back to London 2012, CNN against the BBC. Journalistic Olympic glory on the line. Right, trainers on, golden ticket of accreditation, a map, an Oyster card, an early start, not even eight o'clock, but all the ingredients for a big Olympic day out. Here we are, Hyde Park, first event, the women's triathlon. Let's go. That was Amanda Davis. Amanda said that the boys, I assume her lusty male crew, were excited for beach volleyball. There was some equestrian, football, trains, boats, buses, snapshots of Amanda wearing a silly hat at Wembley, holding a Japanese flag at badminton, Amanda pretending to be asleep on the tube, eating at table tennis, wearing another silly hat at basketball. 14 hours, 10 events. The BBC did add a local angle to the challenge. How many British athletes could reporter Jason Mohammed see in a day? Seven venues, eight sports, 55 athletes, advantage CNN. But the Michael Phelps of this Olympic reporting gimmick is Jim Capel of ESPN. Capel first did it in 2006 in Turin, where he saw seven events in a day, followed it up with 10 in Beijing, six in Vancouver before retiring the concept. There were buses. Of course, there's always buses. But Capel was entranced, delighted, intrigued, and astonished beyond measure, which is a fair and modest takeaway from this, let's be honest, self-serving journalistic space filler, which I wish I had thought of when I covered the Olympics in Athens and Turin, because absent the sportocrats and the political, social, and economic grotesquerie, the Olympic sports smorgasbord is, in fact, a very cool, if a little absurd, thing to behold. Uh, Jim Capel told me that he figures someone must have done it before him. I'm going to go with Pindar, the bard of the ancient games. I'm pretty sure that Olympian Ode 2 is about Pindar catching 15 minutes apiece of boxing, chariot racing, discus javelin, running, wrestling, and pankration in the same day. Josh, what's your wide giant? Can you do whoa, 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 wide giant? Can you do that? Josh, what's your whoa, 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 wide giant? <laughs> It always cracks me up when you say Pankratian. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so it'll be, it'll be four years until I get to say it again. You know, the Olympics distracts us from everything going else going on in the sports world, but it's comforting to know that while the games were going on, people were still writing dumb stuff about the NCAA. So let's bring it back uh, to that old hobby horse, shall we? So, you know, we had Andrew Hawkins on the show. Carmelo Anthony has been celebrated. A bunch of pro athletes speaking out kind of this resurgence of athlete activism. And that uh, has been noted, celebrated. There's the shift happening. But in college sports, there's been a little of it. But coaches still control what players do, what players say, you know. If you didn't kind of realize it before or think about it before, the fact that every coach in the history of sports has come out for Donald Trump kind of gives you a sense of what these guys are all about vis-a-vis authoritarianism, uh, being reactionaries. Etc. So that's not, our not Shashevsky, not Shashevsky. Josh Beheim is also anti anti Trump. See, and you hate Shashevsky. So but I'm not a Beheim fan either. No. <laughs> so I should be a little bit more uh, forgiving of of my coach uh, brethren. There's a lot of good coaches out there, uh, guys who are not authoritarians and reactionaries, or are authoritarians and reactionaries only in the locker room context. Okay, so S- Sports Illustrated. Headline, look who's talking, shielded from media in 2015. UCLA QB Josh Rosen made waves on social media and is ready for close-up by Pete Thamel. Story appears in August 15th, 2016 issue of Sports Illustrated. So here's an excerpt from that story. Rosen has showed signs of immaturity. Two years ago, he and some friends rearranged a neighbor's lawn ornaments in sexually suggestive positions. Well, that sounds funny. Uh, And also just... (laughs) Just plain poor judgment. Did Thamel Thamel describe which positions? (laughs) He did not. There was not like an illustrated Ikea-esque diagram of the Kama Sutra. Anyway, just plain poor judgment, it continues. Since arriving at UCLA, he has set off a social media firestorm over presidential politics, deleted at least one provocative Instagram post, and been forced to, to apologize to the school. The coach is constantly asking Rosen whom he wants to be, Peyton Manning or Johnny Manziel. So is that your choice? That is your choice. Those are the two the two quarterbacks that one can emulate. To be fair, so, I can imagine Peyton Manning engaging in sexually suggestive <laughs> Lauren ornamentation. Yeah, ex- but continue. Ex- exactly. <laughs> so I've I've mentioned this one or two times on the show, the the famous Pete Thamel, Tyron Matthew <clears throat> story where he said that if Tyron Matthew continued to smoke weed, he would be like his father who had killed the guy. Johnny Manziel has done a little bit more than uh, put lawn ornaments in sexually suggestive positions and deleted an Instagram post. But, you know, these are these are our polls. The definitely squeaky clean, never did anything wrong, Peyton Manning. Maybe he just had seen Diner and was emulating Fenwick. I think that's the... The most likely scenario. All right, so let's dive a little deeper. What are these incidents? These these provocative incidents. Um, Rosen wore a white "fuck Trump" bandana around a blue baseball hat while playing at Trump National Golf Club. So speaking his mind a little bit about our Republican nominee. So the head coach of UCLA, the football coach Jim Mora. This is when he brought up the Manziel comparison. Uh, and Rosen says, I don't regret posting the photo at all because personally, I thought it was hilarious. He had posted a picture on Instagram of the fuck Trump uh, bandana. All right. Incident number two. Uh, in May, he posted a Los Angeles Times graphic on Instagram 
This was the provocative graphic on Instagram mm-hmm. showing that UCLA's $280 million deal with Under Armour is the largest in NCAA history. Rosen captioned the post with, we're still amateurs, though. Gotta love nonprofits. Hashtag NCAA. Ouch. Rosen deleted that post and got an earful from Mora, who is disappointed that the quarterback statement distracted from an important day for the university. Distracted. I said, you can't do that, Mora recalls. He says, so many of my teammates have nothing. I have a platform where I can advocate. Mora said, I understand that, Josh, and respect that. Uh But there's a bigger picture you have to understand. So... I am just, I shouldn't be surprised, but how can anyone in 2016 not understand who the villain in the story is? It's not the guy saying the NCAA is bad for, you know, and that UCLA is bad for having this enormous, uh, you know, apparel contract and players not getting anything. Maybe it's the coach for telling him to delete the post because it's a distraction. Why is the quarterback bad here? I mean, I know I'm saying obvious things, but I just cannot believe that this story exists. But the opposite of obvious things are legitimate news stories, apparently. (laughs) He's a challenge, Morris says of Rosen, but he's a fun challenge, a great challenge and an interesting challenge. You know what? If I was Josh Rosen, I would say that about my dumbass coach who's telling me <laughs> to delete things on Instagram. And he's not really – it doesn't seem like a fun challenge or an interesting one. It seems like just a typical dumbass college football coach. Rosen seems like a really good guy. Smart. Jim Mora, what a dick. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's it for me. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>